Welcome to Creation, Myth, or Miracle. This is your host, ex-atheist Richard Walker. Greetings to our Boston radio audience. You get to benefit today on this show because Christians like to cooperate with each other. At least, that's what we're supposed to do, and in this case, that is in fact what is occurring. Bob Inyart from Real Science Radio is also the pastor of the Denville Bible Church, and he's been involved in the apologetics ministry for quite a long time. He's been on the radio for over 25 years, I believe. And he's been involved in many, many debates and various other avenues of ministry in the apologetics realm. And he is able to get very interesting interviews with some of the major players. We've mentioned several times the book Darwin's Doubt, which is an absolute must-read if you have any interest in the evolution debate. This book does the best single job there is of documenting the Cambrian explosion and the implications for the complete insufficiency of neo-Darwinian evolution to explain what we observe out there in the fossil record. The book also exposes us to the latest science, what we've learned in the lab about what it takes to actually build an animal, what type of information content is necessary, and what's going on there in the development of an animal from a single cell. Well, Darwin's Doubt has been and continues to be a bestseller, and the paperback version has just recently been released. And in it, Dr. Stephen Meyer was able to add a section where he answers the critics that have voiced opposition to what he claims over the past year. Now, the fact is, almost all of them chose not to address the science at all, but some did. So listen up now as Bob Inyart interviews Dr. Stephen Meyer, the author of Darwin's Doubt. Greetings to the brightest audience in the country. Welcome to Real Science Radio. I'm Bob Enyart. Fred Williams is on assignment. Well, we've sparred with atheistic evolutionists like Jerry Coyne, Jack Horner, and P.Z. Myers, and we've debated leading anti-creationists like Eugenie Scott, Michael Shermer, and Lawrence Krauss. And we've interviewed an army of highly qualified scholars and scientists whom we've cherry-picked from our own list of Scholars Doubting Darwin, which, by the way, links to thousands of scholars and scientists by name and field. One of those is New York Times bestselling author of Darwin's Doubt, Dr. Stephen Meyer with the Discovery Institute, a leader in the intelligent design movement, and they challenge Darwinian evolution. Dr. Meyer's book was, of course, critically reviewed, including in the journal Science, and the brand new paperback version adds an epilogue which responds to the critics. So to discuss the criticism from Darwinist, it's an honor to welcome back to Real Science Radio, Dr. Stephen Meyer. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Meyer. It is great to be back with you. Thanks for having me on. Well, you're very welcome. So I'd love to get to the journal Science Review, but if we can start with Panda's Thumb, the review by Nicholas Matsky which was also linked to by Chicago's Jerry Coyne. I think that's a great place to start. He did that in record time. He read your book 
and released a 9,000-word review in, what, about 24 hours? Yeah, something like that. It was this time last year. Yes. And so could we talk about his critique? Because most of it centered on something a bit technical. But, Dr. Meyer, our audience has been listening to science broadcast for over 20 years. I think they're up to it. Uh, He focused on cladistics. Right. It might be good just briefly to review the argument of the book and put Maskey's critique in context. The argument of the book concerned an event in the history of life known as the Cambrian Explosion, in which the major groups of animals first arise very abruptly in the geologic column. And in the book, I focused on two main mysteries associated with that from a Darwinian point of view. The first is the abruptness of the explosion and the absence of ancestral fossils in the lower Precambrian rocks, something completely unexpected from the standpoint of Darwinian theory. And then secondly, I addressed a more profound mystery, which is the mystery of what caused these animals to come into existence. And I argued in the book that that mystery had become very much more acute in um, modern times in the last 50 or 60 years because of everything we've come to know about the importance of information, in particular genetic information, to building and maintaining all forms of life. Mm -hmm. The Cambrian explosion, I argued, is actually an explosion of information because we know that it takes a lot of new code, new genetic information to build those new animals. And so that raised the question of where the information came from. Dr. Meyer, in 2011, we have a theology forum here, theologyonline.com, and I was debating an evolutionist, and I pointed out that, and we linked to this in our review of Darwin's Doubt, that with all the progress of molecular biology, the Cambrian explosion is now supercharged because of everything we're learning about how much information is required that goes into a simple protein, let alone a gene regulatory network, let alone a whole body plan. Yeah, exactly. And so that's the huge problem, the biggest problem that the Cambrian explosion confronts the neo-Darwinian evolutionary theory with. So in the book, I address those two main mysteries and develop the case for intelligent design as the best explanation for the origin of the information needed to build those animal forms. Now, Matsky critiqued the book by saying, well, Meyer didn't deal with a subject known as cladistics. And cladistics is a science of classification in which mm-hmm. the evolutionary biologists try to reconstruct either patterns of classification or phylogenetic histories, depending on the different schools of thought in the field, based on an analysis of the anatomical features or characters of the different animals. So the method, essentially, it assumes that the more shared characters there are between two different forms of animal life, the more recently, relatively speaking, they diverged from a common ancestor. Mm. The fewer the shared characters, the longer ago they diverged from a common ancestor. Mm-hmm. Now, what Matsky says is that cladistics can establish the existence of the ancestral forms that are not documented by the fossil record in the lower Precambrian strata or at some point beneath the Cambrian beds. He says maybe they're in earlier parts of the Cambrian. Either way, there's a fallacy in that, that the method of cladistics presupposes a common ancestor. Right. It can't be used to establish one. So, of you, course, you... it is circular at that level. They believe they're going to find a common ancestor, so they simply interpret their own findings as proving a common ancestor. Right. No matter what the character states are that you're analyzing, you're going to plug them into an algorithm that's going to generate a tree-like diagram representing either a classification pattern or that tree can be interpreted as an evolutionary tree. If you interpret it that way, which Matsky does, 
then you've got a problem logically because you can't use a method which presupposes a common ancestor to establish the existence of a common ancestor. Right. It's, so you're it's simply begging the question. You're you know? assuming your conclusion, and then you're suggesting to the public that your effort has proved your conclusion. Right, but the algorithm is going to give you a tree with little nodes that represent common ancestors no matter what you put into it. That's what the program will do. Right. You could create cladograms of books you find in the public library on 42nd Street in Manhattan, and you could you point out... You can do it with appliances in your kitchen. You right. can do it with your socks. You can do it, yeah. you know, and you will get a tree. You will show common ancestry, even though in each of those cases, right. it's clear that the things were individually designed. Now, let's give the audience some animals that they could actually think about, maybe ones they've never heard of. Uh, you mentioned on page 433 of your book, and that'll give them an idea of the problem that the cladis has in developing his cladogram. You mentioned... Lobopods and radiodons. And this is just a fabulous example because evolutionists say, you know, they would have had a common ancestor and they're related. And evolutionary cladists would say you look at their cladograms and you could figure out how they evolved. But you point out that lobopods, they have arthropod-like legs, but they don't have heads. They don't have eyes. Whereas radiodons, they don't have legs but they do have arthropod-like heads and eyes. So now, as an evolutionary scientist, you have to decide what's important in those differences to create your cladogram. Right, and the choice of which characters you want to privilege will end up determining what kind of picture of history you end up generating. Mm. You could have one cladogram suggesting that the lobopods came first and the radiodonts later or, or the reverse. And this is one of the problems is that the cladograms, the same characters can generate multiple conflicting trees, and each tree could correspond to many different possible histories. And so one problem with cladistics is that it doesn't actually give you a single signal about the history of life. It suggests many possible evolutionary histories. And for that reason, it's really hard to interpret cladograms as giving you information about history. History only happened once. And if right. the cladogram is consistent with multiple possible histories, it's really not telling you what did happen. Dr. And Meyer, so it can't be used to compensate for missing fossils. Right. And you just, in a very concise way, you highlighted two huge problems with these cladograms. One is that you look at the description of these organisms and you can create conflicting trees, which happens all the time. Which of these different characteristics are we going to say evolved from which? And secondly, even if you have only one tree, that tree can be arrived at through many different conflicting histories. And you quote leading scientists, experts in these fields who've published pointing this out, that you look at some shared characteristics and you cannot tell how they may have arrived at that state. Yeah, it's a little technical. There's some diagrams in the book that, that make this clear. But the ironic thing was that Nick Matsky cited a particular expert named Bryce in critique of my first edition of the book. And Bryce herself makes the very point that I do, which is that you can't use the science of cladistics to establish a definitive history. And for that reason, many people who practice cladistics think all they're doing is organizing things systematically as a way of understanding differences of classification. And another point that Bryce makes is that cladistics analyzes 
character states, anatomical features of organisms, and it groups them in certain ways and so forth, but it doesn't tell you what caused those character states to arise, and that's really the central mystery the book addressed. What caused the Cambrian animals to arise? Where did the information come from necessary to build them? Cladistics can't address that, and yet Maskey wanted to say that cladistics had refuted Darwin's doubt. So your book, Darwin's Doubt, and we're speaking with the author, Dr. Stephen Meyer, with the Discovery Institute, like we've already mentioned, describes lobopods and radiodonts, but to give the audience a bit more of a picture, Precambrian creatures, and by that I mean those buried just below strata called the Cambrian strata, they include sponges, corals, and worms. And the Cambrian explosion includes rather fancy creatures like trilobites and most of the body plans, the phyla known in the animal kingdom, especially in the fossilized animal kingdom. So if neo-Darwinism were true, then how do you get from a worm or a jellyfish or a sea anemone to a trilobite in just, say, 10 million years? Well, back when Charles Darwin was writing, he said that, as your book points out, this was a bit of a mystery for him, how this jump could happen without intermediary stages. And then 150 years later, Dr. Stephen Meyer, you enter the scene with your signature in the cell classic and now Darwin's Doubt. These books become immediate bestsellers. And so you update the whole argument and you add the layer of biological information. And I think that does bring us to the review in the journal Science. Right. The main argument for design that I'm making has to do with the primacy of information to living systems. One way I used to get at it with my students was ask them, well, if you want to give your computer a new function, what do you have to give it? Mm. And they would understand you need code, you need software. Yeah. And the same thing is true in life. If you want to build a new form of animal life from a simpler pre-existing form, you need a lot of new information. The evolutionary process would have to generate new information. But that's the problem. Because the information in DNA is encoded digitally. It's a series of chemicals that are functioning just like alphabetic characters in a written language or zeros and ones in a section of software code. And what we know from systems like that is that if you start making random changes to characters in functional text or functional code, you're going to degrade that information long before you're going to generate anything new, like a new operating system or a computer program. Yeah. And the same thing turns out to be true in life. So the mutation natural selection mechanism turns out to be not an adequate way of generating new information. And I go into that in a lot more detail in the book. Mm -hmm. But we do know of a cause which is capable of generating information, and that cause is intelligence. It's mind. In fact, whenever we see information and we trace it back to its source, we always come to a mind, not a material process, whether we're talking about digital code in software or a paragraph in a book or hieroglyphic inscription or information embedded in a radio signal. Information always comes from a mind, and that's something we know from experience. So when we see all this big infusion of information in the Cambrian explosion, I argue that's attesting to the activity of a designing intelligence. Mm. So when Charles Marshall wrote his review in, in Darwin's Doubt, this question of the origin of the information for all these diverse organisms, in a sense, he punted because he never really addressed the origin of the information, he might want to put it back further. He might want to say, well, it was already there in the gene regulatory network. 
but he never addressed the origin of that information. He made a very interesting statement, and I really appreciated his review. It was respectful. It had a few minor friendly things to say about the book. It was overall negative. But the most important thing about the review is that of all the reviews, it attempted to address the main argument of the book head right, on. Right. And I thought that was a breakthrough. And secondly, he said something very interesting about the argument. He said, Meyer says you need all this new information to generate the Cambrian animals. But he said, that's not our current understanding. Our current understanding is that the evolutionary process would just need to rewire the gene regulatory networks that control the expression of pre-existing genes. Now, that sounds very elegant, but when you break that down, right. it's an obviously question-begging response because gene regulatory networks are networks of genes. Genes contain genetic information. To rewire them requires coordinated changes in code, which is a, an additional source of information. And then, as Marshall has pointed out in a number of his other published works, the gene regulatory networks act on other pre-existing genes. They regulate their expression at genes for building the parts of these different animals. So he actually presupposed three different sources of unexplained genetic information in order to answer the argument about the problem of the origin of information. In other words, he begged the question. Yeah, and if we could, let's talk a bit about the Hox genes that he encourages people to consider. They might tell a major part of the story. Also, when these scientists are trying to rescue neo-Darwinism, the mutation and natural selection creating new genes... It seems like they're really defending a science that's 50 years old because now we know there's so much more other than just the genetic code. There's all the epigenetic information. There's the sugar code, the bioelectric code, as Jonathan Wells has explained so eloquently with Casey Luskin in the past couple of weeks at ID the Future. There's the protein folding. There's so much going on that merely tinkering with genes that code for proteins, is hardly the main part of the story. Well, that's right. I addressed this in a separate chapter in Darwin's Doubt, the whole problem of epigenetic information, or ontogenetic information, as Jonathan Wells prefers to call it. The idea there is that genes have information for building proteins, but proteins alone don't determine the structure of a body plan. You have to have additional sources of information to arrange proteins into biosynthetic pathways, which characterize specific cell types. You have to have additional information to arrange cell types into tissues, additional information still to arrange tissues into organs and organs and tissues into body plans. So an organism is actually a hierarchically organized system of information and information processing. Mm. And the information in DNA is not sufficient to build an animal body plan. It could, in the best of cases, if you can overcome the improbability of trying to generate yeah. new information by random mutation, it could, in the best of cases, build you proteins. But you need a lot more than that. And yet the neo-Darwinists want to say you get all the information that's necessary for mutating DNA. And so that's clearly not an adequate mechanism. And the challenge of epigenetic information, I think, is really a lights-out challenge to the neo-Darwinian mechanism, because if building an animal body plan requires information beyond the genome, then you could mutate the genome indefinitely and never generate an animal body plan. And so the, the mechanism is just simply not sufficient. And so ways for people to understand how the DNA molecule doesn't carry all the information needed for life is that the cell that comes from the mother, the ovum, carries a tremendous amount of information in that cell including in the cell membrane, spatial information, 
so much information that it very well may be that the genetic information ends up being a minor part of all the information needed for a living organism. The genetic information is certainly necessary, but what oh, yeah. m- developmental biologists are showing is that it's not sufficient to build an animal. Right. And you're right. There are many other sources. There are the pattern of distribution of membrane targets that proteins bind to. Many of these membrane targets actually determine how proteins fold. And so they don't do their job unless these targets are present. And where they are situated turns out to be very important to how organisms develop. There's this sugar code you mentioned on the outside of cells that conveys information between cells during animal development, cell-to-cell communication, and on and on it goes. And probably lots of other sources we haven't yet discovered. Right. Dr. Meyer, if there's a stretch of nucleotides in DNA and we say it codes for a protein, But now we're figuring out that that stretch could be spliced in sometimes hundreds of different ways and even edit it after it's transcribed. And so there's way more going on than the instructions on the DNA molecule could account for. Well, our whole notion of the genome is changing because we used to think of the gene as being something that had a physical locus at a particular place along the DNA molecule. There is genetic information at particular places along the DNA molecule, but the gene seems to be a kind of virtual entity under almost algorithmic control, which is concatenating sections of genetic information from different places on a needs basis to produce all kinds of different proteins, sometimes from the same modules of genetic information. So our understanding of genomics is just creating a profound revolution in our understanding of how life works. Mm. So neo-Darwinism on its face. In fact, I think we should start calling it paleo-Darwinism because it seems to be about a half a century out of date now. Well, there are an awful lot of evolutionary biologists now who are saying that criticism of neo-Darwinism is, if anything, a little bit passe. Right. You know, don't get the textbook writers to acknowledge that yet. We haven't gotten that far. But one of the things I do in Darwin's Doubt is I look at many of the new theories of evolution that are being proposed. And they're being proposed precisely because evolutionary theorists recognize that natural selection and random mutation lacks the creative power required to build things like new animal body plans and complex organs. So they're looking and trying to formulate new mechanisms. What I show in Darwin's Doubt is that whatever the advantages of these new theories, they too have failed to account for the origin of the genetic information and epigenetic information necessary to build new forms of animal life. Yeah, typically they would have to presuppose the existence of that information because information many hold, we hold here at Real Science Radio, that information is not physical. Therefore, if you're strictly a materialist, the realm of matter and energy is not a good source to derive information from, plan, designing, and so on. Well, the information in living systems is instantiated or embodied physically. There's, right. a, there's sure. a molecule that stores the code. But what we know from experience is that it always takes a mind to generate information. And so I think information points to a non-physical source, to a mental source, not a purely physical one. And that's something we know from our uniform and repeated experience, which, as Darwin himself affirmed, is the basis of all scientific reasoning about the past. So this is a perfectly scientific conclusion. The problem is our science has been artificially constrained by the idea that we must explain all phenomena by reference to materialistic causes. Certainly we study materialistic phenomena, but there are some types of phenomena 
that are not well explained apart from the activity of the mind. If you go into the British Museum and look at the Rosetta Stone, you won't say, gee, isn't it wonderful what wind and erosion did? You're going to recognize that the mind of a scribe played a role in that information-rich artifact that you're looking at. Well, Dr. Meyer is obviously correct. No one would assume erosion produced the Rosetta Stone, nor Mount Rushmore for that matter. So why is it that the obvious conclusion that there is intelligence behind life itself, given the nanomachines that we see now, and the necessity for complex, highly specific information content, as well as absolutely no evidence whatsoever for this having arisen by some type of slow, gradual means. So why is this evidence ignored? Simple. You have no choice but to ignore it if you want to remain an atheist materialist. That's why. SeeCreationMythOrMiracle.com